question for today is freedom or enslavement? You would think that that would be an easy question to answer. People always say they want to be free. But it doesn't seem that really that's the case. We can take a look in our own political lives that we will exchange oftentimes our freedom for security or other types of things. We're willing to trade freedom for what appears to be safety. In theological terms, oftentimes we don't understand prior to our coming to know the Lord that we are enslaved in sin. We think that that uh, we have all the free will that we want and we can do and, and our, the life that we choose is best until we come under the realization that we are in fact slaves to sin and that we experience in Christ a freedom that we had not known before. But there always seem to be those who want to drag us back into enslavement. And Paul has been writing to the churches of Galatia Reminding them that the gospel is one of freedom, that Christ has called us to be free from sin, has called us to be children of the living God, and that the pathway to God is not through following the law and becoming circumcised, but faith in Christ. And Paul has used various mechanisms to promote his and debate his, his position. He has used their experience, understanding that when they came to Christ, that's when they received the Holy Spirit, not when they followed the law. He used the scriptures, both in the sense of, of the quotable scriptures, scriptures like the faith shall live by, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he used Examples of narratives in the scriptures of that of Abraham and how Abraham believed God and was accounted to him as righteousness. And then Paul has used the relationships and their experiences. And now Paul is going to use other analogies to communicate his point that Christ has given us freedom and not enslavement. Some of those Analogies will be in the legal arena in Roman law, the law that the people in Galatia would understand because in the church of Galatia was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, but all came under Roman law. He also is going to use an analogy that's very unusual for a man to use. He's going to use childbirth. And so in all of these analogies, he is going to try to, again, strengthen and convince the Galatians that when they began in faith, they should continue in faith and to do otherwise would be that to enslave them. And so in what we call chapter four of the letter to the churches of Galatia, Paul says this. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave although he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So Paul in this is going to use the analogy of Roman law. And it's the analogy of Roman law. You see in the Jewish world, there wasn't this kind of context. In essence, it was 
when a young man got to about 13 or so, they would be bar mitzvahed and recognized as an adult, but he would not be subject to going out to war until he was 20. So there were certain ages that, that under Jewish law uh, was recognized as when you became an adult. Under Roman law it was kind of more like how we have our uh, laws today that you can set up a will and in your will, you can set up a trust or you can do what is known as a living trust. And in there you can say, I'm going to give my children my property, but it is going to be maintained by managers and trustees until the date I set. And so some may, and as, as an attorney, as I advise people, I say, well, the younger your children are, the more stupid you assume that they are and make them prove you wrong. And as they become adults older, then you say, okay, have they gotten a little more wisdom? And so depending upon the size of the estate and the wisdom your children have, you then set those ages. So oftentimes you may say, okay, I'm going to give half to my kids at say 25 when they get out of college or something. And the other half at 30, or if you have a larger estate, maybe a third or a fourth, but you set those who are going to be the managers of the money. Now they're going to inherit it, but they don't get to control it. That's the concept. It's, Whoever, and in this case, the father, because under Roman law, women couldn't pass property, only men. So the father would set these dates. And so he says, even though the child might receive the inheritance from his father, if the father said, you can't have it until you're 50, guess what? You don't get it until you're 50 and somebody else is going to manage it. Or if you're, if you wait till you're 23 or whatever the date set by the father. So it says, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. I'm going to come right back to the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Now, in that one sentence is a whole lot of information. So I'm going to kind of unpack that. First, he says, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things. And if you read the commentaries, they have three or four different explanations of what the elemental things are. Someone will talk about uh, religious uh, rules and regulations. Other will talk about fire and, and water and, and those things. In my humble opinion, this is what Paul's talking about, the elemental things. And in essence, he's kind of saying, these are the ABCs. When we were children, we were held under the ABCs on bondage. Well, what are the ABCs? Don't touch, don't taste, don't do. Isn't that kind of what all parents start off with their children? Don't touch that stove, it's hot. Don't do this, don't eat that, don't, you know, that'll spoiled dinner. You can't have the donut until after, you know, we have all these rules and regulations. It's don't touch, don't taste, don't whatever. And it even, it goes far beyond religion. People who aren't even religious will have these elemental rules and regulations. When the world was founded, there was a simple rule. Don't eat that fruit. One rule, just one basic rule. There's a garden full of everything that you could have. Just don't eat that one thing. And guess what? 
They violated that one elemental rule. Don't touch, don't taste, don't eat. But when the fullness of, when God knew the precise time that Jesus should come into the world, he did. He sent him born of a woman, which means he's human, human as well as God. That he was born under the law so that he might redeem us from the law. No longer, it's not he kept the law so that we can keep the law. He redeemed us so we no longer have to worry about the law because he kept it. As he stated in the scriptures, not one jot and not one tittle will go away until all has been fulfilled. And he fulfilled it. And so he redeemed those under the law that we might receive the adoptions as sons. Now, I have a particular view on this that I don't see many people espousing. But I think I'm right. And obviously, if I didn't think I was right, I wouldn't bring about it now. I am convinced, without a shadow of a doubt, that our salvation is based on being born again. Our salvation does not derive from our being adopted. We are born again. That is how we become saved. Well, what is Paul talking about when he talks about adoption? Now, he's using, again, an analogy of Roman law that says that there was a mechanism, especially for rulers, and since God rules the world, that what they would do is that even though an heir, a son may be the firstborn and the, the one that would most likely receive everything or receive the, the, the succession to power, the Roman emperor and the fathers would adopt a particular son to declare, this is my child and through him he's going to get these things. And there was this legal form of adoption. We are still not saved by adoption. And notice it didn't say we are adopted, that we might be adopted. So it hasn't taken effect yet. So what is Paul talking about? The answer is found in the book of Romans. And usually I try not to explain one book by using another book. But because he's so short here with adoption, and so, so many people talk about, well, I've been adopted by the king in my view of the scriptures, you will be adopted by the king, but not yet. And so what am I talking about? In Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite chapters in all the scriptures, he says kind of the same language that he's going to be using in Galatians. And in chapter 8, he says in verse 14, for all who are being led by the spirit of God are, these are the children of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to again to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoptions as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And Paul's going to use the same language. Then he's going to go on further to explain what adoption is. And then if we go down to the, further, in verse 23, it says this, And not only this, but we also, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons. The key, the redemption of our body. 
What Paul is saying is we are, going, we are the children of God because the Spirit of God has caused him to be, dwell in us, and that makes us sons and heirs. But God is going to adopt us one day, but we are not saved by adoption. Our adoption is when our bodies become new, when they become like Christ, when we are resurrected from the dead or he comes first and we meet him in the air. We are adopted when our bodies are redeemed. So there isn't an inconsistency. You are born again. And that's what makes you a child of God. We will be adopted one day when our bodies are changed. So we are going to receive, we will receive the adoption as sons because you are sons. Notice not before you were adopted because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, father. Now, Depending upon your view of God, people like to discuss what Abba means. Abba was a, a, an, a, an endearing form that a child, a young child, calls his father. The simplest version of that is daddy. But when we have a holy God... People are very uncomfortable with calling a holy God daddy. And so they want to kind of pull back a little bit and say, well, we're, we're not that endearing of God. That's how intimate our relationship is. It's just like a, a child after learning to say daddy crawls up into his father's arms and is hugged and he calls his father Daddy. It's not a matter of, oh, this is the problem. I should call him father. It's that intimate type of discussion. And that is how God has, has created our father-child relationship. It's intimate. Yeah, the formal term is father, our father who art in heaven. But we're also told that he is our daddy, that intimate relationship between child and their father so that so his spirit of his son into our hearts crying Abba father therefore we are no longer a slave but a son and if a son then an heir through God Paul gets right back even though you haven't been adopted in the sense of your bodies have not redeemed even though things aren't quite as you might expect, you are now a child of God and the blessings that you will receive may somewhat be delayed because of the fullness of time. But God has given us his promises and we can rest assured in those and they may not come immediately, but they are assured. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slave to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have become, have come to know God or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Paul's going, you've been given freedom. 
Not only have you been given freedom, you have been given a position of being the child of God. Why is it that you want to turn back to be a slave again? What comfort is there in that? What what nobility is there in that? Why would you want to do that? It is much better to be a child of the king than to be the slave. Why are you turning back? And notice, he's saying, you've... You're all worried about those things that used to be that that are no gods. And you're back to the elementary things of don't touch and don't taste and and don't do. And God has made you his heir and his son. Why be enslaved? Now that you know God, but notice the emphasis, but rather are known by God. And that's the key. Jesus said in one of his teachings that there was those who thought they were doing the will of the Father. And the statement by the judge was, depart from me, I never knew you. Your name is written in the book of life because God knows your name and put it there. God knows you. And in this world, we oftentimes say, well, if there's a God, you can have all the doubts you want. I just want to know that God knows me. That you have been known by God. And notice when Jesus said, I never knew you. For those who are concerned about, again, being enslaved to the law and keeping all the rules and regulations, he didn't say, I once knew you, then I forgot about you, and now I know you because you were following the rules. It was, I never knew you. But once God knows you, he never forgets. You are his. You are his child eternally. So you observe days and months and seasons and years. He's, you know, you're following all these rules and regulations. Why are you being enslaved to that? He says, I fear for you that I have perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul's going, I gave you the truth. Why is it you're turning back to these elemental principles that isn't the gospel? Have I, in essence, have I wasted my time? Would have been better for me to have gone not to the churches in the region of Galatia, but have gone elsewhere. Was it a waste of my time? Paul says, I'm afraid of this. Verse 12, I beg of you, brethren, because become as I am, for I also have become as you are. Now, for those who are, well, that's, that's kind of a bold thing for Paul to say, become as me as I become as you. I think it's a simple statement. Paul says, as he stated out in his letter, I was a Pharisee. I went and was educated by one of the premier rabbis of of that time, Rabbi Gamaliel. I knew the law. I followed the law. I persecuted the church. I had so much zeal for the law that, that it controlled my life. But Paul says, because... Christ came to me and because the spirit was placed in me and I understand that I was saved by grace through faith in Christ. 
that I don't follow the rules and regulations. So he says, become as I am, just as I have become as you. I don't follow the law just like you used to not follow the law before you all of a sudden were taught that you ought to. We need to, to be together, live together in this. He says, you have done me no wrong. And in reality, their actions don't offend Paul. They're not wronging Paul. They're wronging the teachings of God. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now, this is where everybody wants to kind of, well, what's Paul talking about this bodily illness? And some think, well, maybe because later he'll talk about what they'll do, that it might be his eyesight, that maybe his eyes were, were uh, going blind or they were weeping or, or whatever, and that was a, a terrible condition in, in people. We also see in Second Corinthians, we talk about that God placed a thorn in his flesh that he might not glorify himself. And some people think, well, maybe that thorn in the flesh was eyesight or whatever. The answer is nobody knows. It's also entirely possible that it has nothing to do with per se, his eyesight in the sense of a disease. For you see, Paul, when he was on his missionary journeys, especially before he got to the Galatia area, was stoned and left for dead. But before that, he healed people. He had the ministry of healing, which then allowed people to hear what he had to say, that they might convert those. And so Paul, if you will, was a faith healer. And apparently either because of this, the injuries he sustained or some perhaps malaria or some other type of disease that would have been that he became sick and had to curtail some of his travels. And you know how people are in the flesh. Because they even quoted Jesus. Jesus says, there will come a day when it'll say, physician, heal thyself. And I'm sure people would say, well, Paul, if you're such a great man of God, and you, I heard about all these healings that you've done, how come you can't heal yourself? And I suspect that part of the, the situation is, is that it would have been those who would have said, well, Paul couldn't have been that great a man if he can't heal himself because he healed others. And that condition may have been such that could have been and to use our words, a turnoff to those around him. But he says they were different because they accepted him as an angel of God, as a messenger of God. No, no, they accepted him if Jesus himself would have appeared before them. Now that's pretty awesome. Where then is the sense of blessing you had? He's going, when I came to you and I preached to you and I was, I had this physical condition and you... And you consider it as a blessing. You receive me as Jesus. Why are you still conducting yourself this way? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. He's saying your situation was such as we would have given up our eyesight for your benefit. 
That's how much love the Galatians had for him and the message that Paul brought. And yet now they are turning to a different message. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Paul saying, you love me when I presented the gospel to you. And now that others presenting a gospel that's not a gospel, and you're turning to enslavement rather than freedom, have I become your enemy because I'm trying to get you back on track? And he says, they, and that's the ones who are teaching um, that they need to become circumcised and follow the law. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you up, shut you out so that you will seek them. He's in their reason for teaching you this isn't for your benefit. It's for theirs. And they want to shut you out. They want you to stop hearing the truth and accepting those who are coming in the truth so that they are praised, that they're saying, isn't so-and-so wonderful as opposed to isn't the Lord wonderful? It says, but in case you get it wrong, it says, but it is good always to eagerly, to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. Paul's saying, the point is, it's not that you are being sought out to be commended and and to be sought for. That's good. But what's the purpose? Is it the purpose that I might be better off or that you might be better off? And not only when I am present with you, my children with whom I begin in labor until Christ is forming you. This is the other analogy that Paul used. And again, kind of an odd one for a man to use. He says, because we men have observed our wives giving birth and can see how painful it is, but we don't know it. So it's an odd analogy. I remember my, and so all of, of childbirthing was, my wife uh, had C-section, so it was a little different. My mother once said, she goes, childbirth is the most terrible pain that you can imagine, but the one that is most quickly forgotten. But Paul is saying, when I labor over you, it's not easy. It's difficult. It's painful. But I'm doing so that Christ might be formed in you, that you might be birthed in Christ And Jesus being formed in you isn't a matter of just being a believer, but that we might be changed into the image of Christ. You see, in today's last several hundred years, if you will, of evangelists, the evangelists, what they do is they come to town, uh, they preach, people are saved, hopefully, and then they leave. And what happens is they birth a bunch of little babies. But if you've ever been around a little baby, guess what? They need parenting. They need to be fed. They need to be clothed. They need to make, make sure they're safe. And Paul is saying the birthing process is not simply pop, you're out. It's that Christ might be formed in you, that you might be in the image of Christ. It's not just get you to say the sinner's prayer and walk away, but that Christ might be formed in you. And that is the job of not just Paul, 
That is the job of every believer is to see that those who come to Christ are formed, that they become in the image of Christ. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Paul is going, I have to write this because of what I've heard. And I'm deeply concerned because all of my efforts may have been fruitless. But if I'm able to see you, I don't have to be a stern. You can see my love for you because oftentimes in our modern world where people text or people email, oftentimes people will receive that writing, not the way you intended it. And then they may be offended or harmed or hurt. And that's not what you've been at all. And Paul's going, I'd rather be there with you so you can see my compassion and my concern and that I might impart in you part of my life that you might see of my love for you and not just a bunch of words. But Paul's not quite sure how to go now. Do I continue writing sternly or do I move back and be a little more loving? What is the best way that Christ might be formed in you? And he goes, I'm uncertain. I'm perplexed. I'm not sure which way to go. Which should give us some confidence because there are oftentimes we don't know how to communicate to others. And there are times in our sincerity of trying to communicate the truth that we come across as Pharisees. And that's not what we meant. Or, unfortunately, we try to quote a scripture thinking that that's comforting and it's too soon because our hurt's too real. It's knowing when to provide comfort. It's knowing when to be there. And so that's why I've always appreciated kind of the Jewish form of sitting there. And the form of sitting there is, there's a story where a um, rabbi heard that a bank was going to foreclose on this elderly woman's house for not paying the mortgage. So the rabbi went to the, to the bank president's office and sat there. And the bank president, what do you want, rabbi? He goes, there's nothing you can do. And he just continued sitting there. And he goes, well, tell my rabbi, what, what is that you want? He goes, there's nothing you can do. And finally, the bank president gets and goes, just tell me what it is. And the rabbi goes, Mrs. So-and-so is delinquent on her mortgage, and you're going to foreclose on her house. And the rabbi and the bank president, yes, rabbi, there's nothing I can do. And he goes, yes, I know, but I couldn't just do nothing. So I came and I sat. And there are times when we experience a friend of ours or a loved one will experience loss. And let's face it, there's nothing we can say to make it right at the time. But it doesn't mean we just sit and sit there and be with them to show our love. Yes, we are perplexed as what the right thing to say. And oftentimes there is no right thing because all the right things just don't sound right. 
But there will come a time when you can strengthen faith and you can encourage and you can lift up. And all of those words that you have loved to have said, you can now say, but you don't know because you haven't sat there. And that's what Paul wants to do. He wants to be there. He wants to observe their response to his teachings that he might understand whether I need to continue to, to admonish or to encourage or to just put my, lap, my arms around you and say, I love you. I'm perplexed. And so are we. And quite frankly, we should be perplexed with ourselves and others when we choose to go from freedom back into enslavement. The amazing thing Paul has been telling us is that in our salvation, yes, we have been redeemed from the law. And yes, we are now righteous because of faith. And we have an eternal home in heaven. But God has told us that we are going to be and are his children. Not just forgiven. We've been given a special relationship with the holy and living God who allows us to call him by intimate terms. And we can do one of three things with that. We can turn back to enslavement. We can be puffed up and say, I am a child of God. I'm special. Or you can say, I don't deserve to be a beggar outside his kingdom. But because of the grace of God, he has called me his child. That's how awesome the love of our God is. And that is why Amazing grace is so well known because the fact of the matter is we can talk about the elemental things and some people might think in biblical teaching grace is an elemental thing. If you spent the next 10,000 years to mine the depth and the breadth and the quality of his grace. You have only scratched the surface of who God is. So the challenge for you and me is to not surrender to enslavement again, but to be and understand that we are the children of God and our actions should emulate, and this is according to Hebrews, our elder brother, Jesus. If you want to know how to conduct yourself as a child of the, the Lord God, see Jesus. See his humility. See his love. See his self-sacrifice. It's not, I'm a child of the king. It's, I'm a child of the king how can I help you? How can I minister to you? How can I love you? How can I reflect God's love 
to you. 